Good evening, America. This is uh, just uh, I will <laughs> try that one more time, Sam. I will get that out. This is a just cause coast to coast, <laughs> where we bring you educational awareness and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and our special contributing analyst Lamont Banks will be joining us shortly. Our phone number is three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six three four seven eight three eight. Eight nine seven six. How are you doing, Cliff? How are you doing, Lisa? Doing good. Hanging in there. All right. I know you guys. Sam, good evening. I am here already. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's talking in my head there. How you doing, Lamont? Doing very well. Awesome. Hey, uh, this evening, for our listeners, we have uh, several things we're going to be talking about, and we're going to ask you to call in and chime in on it. we got some subjects that uh, I think should disturb you. Uh, some of the things we're going to talk about is suicides in the federal prisons, mis- uh, overall subject of miscarriage of justice, uh, how the uh, miscarriage of justice and the conditions in the prisons in the United States, the effects that it can have on inmates. Uh, is, you know, when you look at uh, the comparison of the conditions in the United States compared to some of the other conditions uh, around the world, uh, we don't rank very high. I mean, we, we have no regard for people's rights, and uh, folks are just uh, mistreated. I mean, no, no other way to put it. They're mistreated. But later in the program, we're going to have a couple of uh, special guests joining us. Uh, one is going to be C. Ronald Huff, and uh, Mr. Huff is a professor, professor emeritus uh, of criminology, law, and sociology. Uh, and uh, he is the dean. Uh, he served as the dean of School of, of Social Ecology at the University of California, Irvine. So we look forward to that conversation. And then we also will have a little bit later joining us Donald S. Connery. And so we'll dive into those conversations a little bit later. Uh, Lisa, give us our uh, disclaimer. Yeah, I just want to remind everybody that we are not attorneys, and a just cause coast-to-coast does not provide legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. And as always, thank you for tuning in and spending time with us this evening. And, you know, as our listeners know, those who join us regularly, uh, one of the main things we talk about here on the program are the IRP-6, and we will continue to talk about the IRP-6. We invite you to go out to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org, and uh, follow along with us as we talk about certain subjects. Uh, but the IRP-6, we ask that you keep them in your prayers. And, and as we continue to fight uh, for their freedom, we're talking about David Banks, Dave Zerpolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. Also, uh, if you'd like more information about A Just Cause, you can follow us and get information at www.a-justcause.com. Uh, and for archives of the programs, like the program you're going to hear tonight, you're going to hear some good stuff. So you'll probably want to go back and listen to it. That can be found at AJCRadio.com. You can also tune in to Live365.com for 24 by 7 AJC programming. We ask that you like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Cliff, I know uh, let's jump to uh, one of the articles that we 
have pulled uh, for our discussion to get things started tonight. What what is that article about? Yeah, we have this article um, written in the uh, oh, which I was going to read the name, but I think it's the Atlantic, and this article is by Ashley Portero. It was written in August of 2012, but it still rings true to this day. It is titled "Prison Chief Pen's Memo Urging Inmates Not to Commit Suicide." The this article this article on so many levels is just totally totally sickening. Uh, it starts off by saying, following the highly publicized suicide of a, a mentally ill inmate at the U.S. Penitentiary Administrative Maximum or ADX in Florence, Colorado, so that's where the IRP six are. The Federal Bureau of Prisons sent a suicide prevention memo to all prisoners in federal lockups to encourage them not to lose hope. Uh, the memo was uncovered by the Atlantic's Andrew Cohen. He's been reporting on a lawsuit challenging solitary confinement and mental health care in the prison facility. Uh, this inmate, Jose Martin Vega, he hanged himself in his cell after alleged, allegedly facing cruel and unusual punishment by prison officials who also failed to provide adequate, treat, adequate treatment for the prisoner's paranoid schizophrenia. And so then the director of uh, BOP, Charles E. Samuels Jr., he sends out a, uh, uh, a note, a letter, whatever you want to call it, urging struggling inmates to seek help from prison staff if they uh, experience suicidal thoughts. Here's basically the crux of his memo. It says, at times you may feel hopeless about your future and your thoughts may turn to suicide. If you're unable to think of solutions other than suicide, it's not because solutions do not exist. Really, Director? It is because you are currently unable to see them, Samuels wrote. Do not lose hope. Solutions can be found, feelings change, and anticipated positive events occur. Look for meaning and purpose in educational and treatment programs, faith, work, family, and friends. Uh, well, Cliff, they got to have those kind of programs. Yeah, first, exactly. Right? I mean, this is this is totally sick. And then another thing that uh, Andrew Cohen uh, of the Atlantic points out, he says uh, Cohen points out that the June lawsuit, known as Bacot versus Federal Bureau of Prisons, alleges that there are only two mental mental health professionals responsible for the care of 450 prisoners at ADX Florence. With such a ratio, it's ridiculous to think that even those inmates who want to accept Director Samuels' kind invitation are going to be successful in hoping to do so. He also described the state of some of the prisoners who presumably received the memo, which included one man who has... Wow. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy. So it includes one man who's cut off his scrotum and a testicle and amputated some of his fingers, another who allegedly crawls around ADX Florence on one leg because prison officials have refused to replace his prosthetic leg, and another who tried to commit suicide in 2008 and was promptly returned to the cell in which he had made the attempt, a cell which was still covered in his own blood. And then so how does Director Samuel say, you know, turn to some programs, turn to help, have positive thoughts? There are no you you're talking about ADX. This is the administrative maximum. There is no hope. You give a man three life sentences and then write him a memo and say don't lose hope, you know. You 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 something and and his little sick point that says uh unanticipated positive events occur. Where? When? How? When you're locked up in in federal prison in ADX? 
in maximum security. 23 hours. Yeah. 23 and a half, 23, 23 hours. Yeah. Up. And it, it, don't lose hope. Some, some po- unexpected positive event is going to show up. I haven't seen or heard of any unexpected positive events happening down at uh, Florence, Colorado. This is uh, totally sick. Don't lose hope. You lock me up. You give me a ridiculous sentence. And then tell me. If you're thinking about suicide, if you're if you're thinking about getting out of your situation where you're being abused by the system, where your uh basically your accommodations, your your living conditions are horrible, they take you back to a cell and put you in there where your blood is all over the floor where you try to commit suicide. You're like, okay, well, we're gonna discipline you. Don't be trying to commit suicide. So we discipline you, then put you back in your cell and tell you don't lose hope. But well, these these people are insane. They want to tell you uh, that you should not lose faith. You should have hope. All that kind of stuff. They take away your hope. Yes. They treat these people as if they're not human, and then you say, "Hold on to hope. Hold on to what hope?" One of the IRP six. Uh, had talked about uh, some time back about lying in bed in the middle of the night and uh, a guard coming through and kicking him just for no reason, just because he could while he's laying there sleeping. They're not treated like they're human. Trying to antagonize them. Yeah, they just, they want, they want to bother these people. They want to antagonize them. They want to cause problems for them. They don't want them to have hope. That's a bunch of crap. Well, and, and, you know, on that subject, when you think about, uh, the different levels of prison, and you you got the camp, you got the the minimum, you got the medium, you got the maximum, and then you got supermax. And you know, even at Florence, when you hear of the stories at the prison camp, you know, and, and you know, some of the guys who are who are at that camp have been to other camps, and they say, you right. know, that Florence is not a camp, or the the, the quote camp at Florence is not a camp. Uh, that it may as well be on the level of a of a minimum or a medium the way they treat them. And it brings back to memory, you know, uh, one of the administrators that was there uh, by the name of, of Griggs. And if you recall, you know, Griggs made, uh, he tried to just talk about antagonizing folks. He made a comment when IRP6 first got there, uh, something to the effect that I knew you guys were going to be trouble as soon as I heard you were coming here. And, it's and like, how do you know that? And what does that mean? I mean, if if anybody was creating troubles, it was Mr. Griggs. I mean, exactly. that's why a just cause had to send letters to the warden, send letters to the Bureau of Prisons, uh, explaining some of the some of the antics of Mr. Griggs. Yeah, we actually had to go to D.C. because you know he was in there, he's abusing inmates, and when we questioned about, say, hey, based off the rules of the BOP rules and uh, of, of standard procedure. This, you're violating the rule. Why is it that you're doing these things and BOP rules say that you're not supposed to? to? And what does he say? Well, you got to take it up. Take it up with Washington. Call them. So, you know, uh, Just Calls jumped on the plane and said, we'll take it up with Washington. We have been sending uh, complaints, sending all kind of letters saying, hey, what is going on with the uh, camp administrator? What was his first name? Donald. Donald Griggs. What yeah. is going on with him, and why is it that he's getting away with this stuff? So, you know, we went out there, presented our letters, and uh, actually, um, Director, I think it was Director Samuels, yeah. gave a call to the yep. warden down there, like, what are you guys doing down in Florence, Colorado? So, you know, uh, his his letter was a little bit insane, talking about hold on to hope to men who 
are locked up for, you know, three life sentences. But at least in that situation, he did reach out and, uh, you know, now Mr. Griggs is no longer employed at, uh, you know, uh, Florence, that he's no longer the camp administrator. They did get rid of him because he was slightly insane with the way that he was running things down there. Well, and, you know, Cliff, uh, I, I know, like you say, that article was from a couple of years ago, but, you know, the Bureau of, of, uh, St- of Justice Statistics actually did, they, they sometimes track numbers and, you know, you have to question and take it with a grain of salt, some of the things they say, but uh, around that same time period, uh, they shared some numbers that, and, and an article was published on NBCNews.com at that, around that time that said, suicides kill more inmates than homicide, overdoses, and accidents combined. Wow. And the uh, Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics said that 185 inmates took their own lives in state and federal prisons around that time period. And so, you know, it, is there something that needs to be done? About that, absolutely. Absolutely. And but like you said, as far as the memo saying, you know, hey, get involved in something. You know, uh, do something to to keep your spirits up. Are you kidding? I mean, you got well, people. I'm Go sorry. ahead, Lamont. Go ahead, Lamont. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Sam. Here's the problem that you have. Um, the the issue, as and I, Cliff was referencing, the people uh, that have lost hope that are looking at three life sentences and the memo to come out saying, please refrain from doing this here's the here's the insanity of all of this you send me a memo which is not personal telling me not to lose hope and please don't take my life and at the same time give no incentive to give me a reason to continue to live you understand what i'm saying there is no incentive in these prisons it's not only uh florence you're talking about people that have four to six years are trying to take their life because of the horrific conditions in these prisons. So you're not talking about somebody that's just doing life. That's how dire the environment is in the, in the United States prisons across this country. If I'm looking at four to six years or seven to ten years, and I am contemplating taking my life, there is a serious problem in the conditions in which you put these men in. And, in, and not only men, women... Uh, you got youth youth uh, prisons across this country that that are, are 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 set up for the youth, which I have done research on those items as well, where young people are attempting to take their lives at 14 and 15 and 6 years old. So the foundation of this starts all the way down to the to the juvenile facilities, all the way up. And so what you have in a nutshell, you have no incentive other than treating these people like animals, I lived it myself. I went through it for seven years. I saw the abuse. I saw the the downright cruelty, not only done to myself, done to others that were there, uh, people coming in with razor blade cuts all the way up their arms, people putting feces on themselves in the holding cell because they do not want to continue to be in a facility that is at that level of cruelty. And we sit here in this country and act like, oh, well, it's, it's not that bad. Well, you know, they shouldn't have done, they did this, so it, it doesn't matter how they're treated. That is insanity on its highest level. It's the no. sickest thing I've ever heard. And, and then, I mean, the, the whole judicial system is, it's, 
I mean, there's like there's not really words for it because you can call it broken, but it doesn't do justice on the things that are wrong with it. Just like we talked about the appellate process the, uh, on Tuesday night. The appellate process is set in place to affirm what the what the lower court did. So basically, you get convicted in court. The appellate process is not there to say, okay, we are going out of our way to find out what happened wrong. We're going we're digging deep to find out how we can take any type of uh due process violation, any type of constitutional violation, any type of way that any of your rights were violated. The the appellate court is not there for that. The appellate court is there to say we are going to go out of our way to make sure that the the decision where you got convicted, we have to make sure that that stays in place. And that is where the hopelessness comes in. You're convicted, you get a life sentence, or even like you said, Lamont, you get, you get five, ten years, and you're already, people who are in the system, they come to the realization, you know what, the appellate process is a joke. It's not here for me. It's not going to serve me. This is all about trying to keep me locked up in prison. And that is totally sickening when you think about it. Well, they laughed at me. They laughed at me when I told them I was appealing my case. They laughed. I bet they did. I had inmates tell me, man, are you serious? He said, man, don't waste your time doing that, man. In Colorado? He said, man, they're not going to overturn your case. It's a joke. And I know uh, that one of the IRP6, Gary Walker, uh, when their appeal was uh, was denied, he said that he felt like someone had kicked him in the chest when he found out that the appeal was denied. And but what he did, what he obviously didn't understand was that the appellate court is not there for the people. The appellate court is not there for the people who have been wrongfully convicted. That's not what. It, that's not their purpose. Their purpose is just to be there and uphold what the lower court did. That's all they're there for. That was their purpose in being put in place. That's right. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned Gary Walker. He has pretty much fallen into this state of depression because he was, uh, you know, disillusioned with the system, that the system, he's thinking, is going to give him some type of remedy. That is not what it's there about. And, and we didn't understand it either. Yeah. We thought that the appellate court – is going to look for a way to ensure that your rights were were uh, were upheld, to ensure there was no violation. It's the total opposite. And so, like you said, Lisa, he felt like oh, I've been kicked in the chest with this decision that's come through, and now what do I do? What type of uh, what type of um, remedy do I have now? What exactly is going on with me? What can I do to uh, you know? To, to have my my situation rim and um he's in a very very deep state of depression yeah. right now yeah and and um when you look at and, and you know we were talking about other conditions there in florence as well and you know when you look at how they are treated and when you have someone who has never ever you know committed a crime never ever been involved in the in the uh uh judicial process uh and and the extent that you know, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Hurst went through, uh, uh, and and John Walsh, his boss, uh, the other Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunila Hazra, that whole ordeal 
you know, is a strain on anybody, not just the not just the guys who went through it, but their families and everything. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back. We got callers who are waiting in the queue. Uh, please be patient. We're going to take our take some calls when we when we come back. Uh, but we do have to take this quick break. It just calls coast to coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number is three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six. We'll be right back. Every crime has a victim, and every victim needs help. Being violated by a crime can leave you feeling alone in the world. National Center for Victims of Crime can help. Let us be your resource, your support, your guide to rebuilding your life and restoring hope. Yes, you have the ability to recover. Take the first step. Call 1-800-FYI-CALL or visit us at www.ncbc.org. Talk, news, politics, and inspiration. These are the voices that prisoners in solitary confinement hear every day. Out of Arizona's total of 2,076 prisoners held in solitary, 30% are taking prescription medication to deal with mental illnesses, and 11% have diagnosed schizophrenia. Experts report that the extreme and prolonged isolation exasperates pre-existing conditions and appears to even cause mental illness in prisoners who were not previously ill. While prisoners deserve punishment, Arizona can do better. We need to change the solitary confinement rules. Unlike any other states, Arizona prisoners are held in 8 by 10 cells for at least 23 hours a day with no windows and virtually no human interaction. Perhaps the best way to fix solitary confinement so it strikes a balance between punishment and humanity is to decrease the size of solitary units. Colorado, Texas, Mississippi, and Illinois have decreased the size of their units, only admitting prisoners who need the rehabilitating experience, and have saved over $6 million without compromising prison safety. A study produced in Colorado reported that after decreasing the number of solitary units, prisoners experienced an improvement in overall mental health of the confined inmate population. How can we do this? We need to reach out to Director of Corrections Charles L. Ryan, asking him to decrease the number of solitary units. Solitary confinement needs to remain a place for punishment and behavior change, but it can also be a place of innovation and rebuilding. The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, 
and joining us by phone, our special contributing analyst, Lamont Banks. So we're talking about uh, the conditions in prison and and, uh, a memo that uh, Director Samuels at the federal uh, BOP had published uh, a while back. But like you said, Cliff, it's still relevant today. And you talk about the conditions uh, that exist in the federal in the federal as well as state prison systems. Lamont was talking about this, uh, the conditions that exist in the state prison systems. And uh, so uh, before going to the break, we had some callers in the queue. So you ready to go to the first yeah. caller? Cliff? Yes, we will go to we got uh, Danny in California. You have a question or a comment? Uh, yes, I do. My name is Danny Salato, and I'm in California. We were at, my brother Andy and I were at the Florence camp last week to visit our brother Ron. Mm-hmm. Me, there's a topic of a whole other su- subject. But anyway, when my brother Ron got there two years ago, he was as healthy as anybody on this planet. He, he worked out an awful lot. He ran. He was in very, very good shape. Currently, uh, in July, Ron was hit by a forklift in the Unicor where they had dispatched him to work. And right now we went and visited him. He is in a wheelchair. He cannot walk. He has a broken back. He, uh, he's disoriented. Uh, it gets even worse. His blood pressure right now is right around 180 or 190 over 120 or 130. He's uh, on the verge of having a stroke. Well, we went and saw him in a wheelchair. He could not walk in a full back brace and a neck brace. He informed us that he is getting no medication whatsoever. Even though we've contacted the prison and they said, oh, no, no, we're giving him this, 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 and this. Uh, the truth is, every time he goes to get medication, they say, gee, we're sorry, we have no medication for you. Now, here is what happened, what's happened since July when he got hit with a forklift. We have no idea what the prison medication that they have been giving him, but mm-hmm. now he's having massive seizures. And the seizures, that's, that's part of the reason his hip is black from one end to the other, when he goes to the bathroom, he has to wear a mouthpiece because as soon as he sits down, he has a seizure. He can crack his head open. He was disoriented, couldn't even recognize the building that he sleeps in every single night. The next day, uh, which was Sunday, we visited him on Friday evening. He had to leave early because he was getting ill. Sunday, we were there to see him at 8 o'clock in the morning. At 8.20, we'd finished the paperwork and were waiting, and we were informed he had had a very bad night vomiting all night long, and they were trying to get a hold of the Florence medics, the doctors. This is at at 20 minutes after 8 when we were told this. The doctors never showed up until 9.30, and when they did, uh, it was probably quarter after 10, the EMT who assisted in the examination of our brother said, we believe he has had a stroke, and we are going to transport him to the hospital because we believe that he needs immediate medical attention. Now, this what happens next is just absolutely unbelievable. And thank goodness that the Just Cause people were in there and they witnessed every single minute of this right along with my brother Randy. This horrific situation. What happens next? This is quarter after ten. They tell us the EMT tells us if you wait right here. You can see him as he comes through. You can say, hi, Ron, we're here, blah, blah, blah. If you wait right here, you'll be able to see him when we bring him through for transport. All of a sudden, we go from quarter after 10 till about 11 o'clock, and we see them bringing Ron up in a wheelchair, and he looks completely incoherent. They stop outside the door, and he sits there for 15 minutes. Now, we're inside the room waiting to see him. 
We watch him on the other side of the door. They turn around after 15 minutes, and they take him back to his cell. Then we are told at 1130, I'm sorry, we cannot transport your brother while you are on the premises. This is a security risk. Now, you have to understand this all starts at 815 this morning, and now it is 1130, and we're told they can't transport him anywhere while we are on the the premises. So my brother Randy and I get in the car, and we leave immediately, knowing that Ron has to have, he's had a stroke. He has to have immediate attention. Well, then what happens is after we leave, thank goodness the Just Cause people were paying attention to what happened. They actually bring him up at 10 minutes to to 1. We leave at 1130. At 10 minutes to 1, they bring him back up, and they take him to the AdMax. He is not transported. He is left at the AdMax facility until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they put him in a car, and they take him to uh, wherever they took him. He was back in his cell early evening, and they did absolutely nothing for him. Uh, He spent the next three days, almost four days, in his bunk, unable to get out of bed, unable to wake up, just comatose. His fellow inmates were, were, were raising all kinds of ruckus, trying to get him some help. Nobody wow. would bother to even hey, check on him. Hey, Danny, uh, quick question, yes. and, and we're, we're going to have to go to some other callers real quick. And, and, sure. and I know some of the folks from Adjust Cause, they did make us aware of that uh, situation. Sure. So, you know, we're glad you were able to call in and share that with our listeners. And uh, sure. just real quick, uh, and then we, we have to move on, but but how how sure. is your brother doing? How, how's your brother doing now? Have, have you gotten any kind the of latest, update? The, well, the latest the latest we read for him was he did he did get up he sat up in his bed two days ago and some of his fellow inmates brought him something to eat and he did get something to eat and we are waiting okay. on a report tonight to see how he's doing he hasn't left his bunk yet but he is he apparently he has he is coming out of it slowly okay so Danny what we'll do uh, keep in contact with the just cause and and you know uh, we want to continue to follow that. Because uh, sure. you know when we when we got reports of that, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago uh, when when uh, yeah. folks who who were there visiting at the at uh, Florence and when they came back and they were saying you won't believe what just happened. And so when we heard it was about an it, atrocity, it was yeah. unbelievable. It was an atrocity. Absolutely. Yeah. So we want to be sure that yeah. you uh, keep us informed of that, and we're going to stay on top of it. So uh, so Danny, uh, we appreciate the call. And uh, Cliff, who, who else do we have there? Uh, we have Thank LaWanda. Thank you very much for what you those folks do. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Danny. No, you betcha. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, and we have uh, LaWanda and Clue. LaWanda and Q, you have a, a question or a comment? LaWanda, are you there? Expect somebody to have hope, even more so. When you have been accused of something you did not do, have never done anything wrong, and you have the audacity, the nerve to say, have hope. Put you in there, and let's see how much hope you have. There is nothing to have hope for. I'm being abused. I'm being mistreated. This is a shame that this poor man, and then they said they set him and gave him something to eat. I wonder what they gave him to eat. It, ain't, it probably was some expired filth, because that's all we hear about in that dump is about expired food. That's no good. They don't feed. These are grown men who get no decent 
meals and no food. You won't give a man that weighs from, from well, I don't know what men weigh for the most part. I mean, if it's 185 to 250 to 300 pounds, whatever, you give them a piece of dried up, nasty, filthy, uh, a piece of day-old or week-old cake, a, a piece, and you expect a man to sustain himself with that. This, this is, this, and I was there that day that that, that, that happened to this, this, this woman that just was on the phone. I was there. And, and this man, everybody was talking about, they said that man had a stroke. He's been, hey, now, where you get, where does it come in that you, uh, uh, we can't bring him out because it's a security risk. You a security risk lie. You just didn't want to take that man. They don't care about these people. They treat them like dogs, worse than dogs. Worse than any animal on the planet. They'll put you in prison if you mistreat an animal, but you're going to treat people like dirt, like they're not human beings. I don't care what they did to rehabilitate or make them better. You're making the situation worse, not better. You're making it worse. If I can find a person when God made us to need light and love and, 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 and be able to interact with human beings, and you take them away from that, you expect them to get better? This is sick. And I, I was unjustly accused in prison for six months, and those people treated those ladies like they didn't care. There was women sick all the time that they didn't care. They don't care about your physical Dental, anything. The girls wouldn't even want to get teeth pulled. You, you get a tooth pulled in there, you are in trouble. These, this is a bunch of crap, and something has got to be done about it. I am very, very upset about it. This is well, these people are inhumane in this country. They have no kind of sense. They have no feeling. They have no conscience. They're just evil. I want to do as much dirt to a human being as I can do, and God's going to judge them for it. Thank you for your time. All right, thank you, Luana. And and uh, you know, we like I said, we we heard a lot of uh, of things about that situation on that day. Uh, do we have another caller? Yes, we uh, we have Ethel on the line. You have a question or comment? Did we lose Ethel? All right. Do we have another one? Go to the next one, please. Michael, you're on the line. Yes, I just want to talk about the injustice system of a lot of guys being locked up in prison for something they didn't do, but then they find out. Then when they release them, they're only given some chunk change, but the life of those people has been taken. So how do we stop that? Well, you know, Michael, that's one of the things that a just cause, that's what a just cause, one of the uh, agenda items for a just cause is to fight for that kind of thing. We we talk about that from time to time on the program, that you can have someone who actually committed a crime, and once they're released, they have various programs, social programs uh, that help to reindoctrinate them into society. Uh, unfortunately, when you have someone that is wrongfully convicted, then uh, they are released. And there's nothing for them. And they actually have to sue the state or sue the federal government or sue whoever to get some sort of restitution for the many years that they have lost sitting in prison for something that they did not do. And we've heard uh, from some of our 
uh, uh, guests that we've had on the program who were wrongfully convicted, and and some of them were in for life sentences, and they said that the attitude that was prevailing within the prison system was that you're in here for life. So why are we going to expend any energy as far as giving you any uh, education programs, any any type of uh, trade? Uh, uh, education or anything like that, even while you're in the system. So then once you're exonerated and you're proven that you didn't do anything and you get out, you don't even have the skills. So, you know, Michael, that is something that we are fighting for, and it's going to take people like you and others like you who are interested and care about this kind of thing to get on board and get involved in local organizations there or contact the Just Cause at contact at a-justcause and ask how you can get involved. Uh, let's go to our first guest. Uh, we have C. Ronald Huff joining us. And uh, Mr. Huff has an extended background uh, in law enforcement and, and, uh, and a great understanding of uh, the, uh, the justice system and miscarriage of justice. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Welcome to the program, Mr. Huff. How are you doing? Uh, just fine. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Yeah, so uh, as you can see, the, the uh, momentum has picked up even before you join. Uh, so give us a little bit of uh, uh, information on your background, and I know you've written several books on wrongful convictions and miscarriage of justice. Uh, you've got uh, hundreds of articles that you've written. Uh, you just finished writing an article and co-written one with uh, Jim and Nancy Petro, who we've had on the program before. So give us a little bit, give our listeners a little bit of background, and then let's, you know, let's kind of uh, jump into this conversation about miscarriage of justice. Oh, sure. I'll be brief. Um, you know, I, uh, before my academic career, I actually worked in a maximum security institution back in Ohio for mentally disturbed criminals. And so um, that's how I originally got into criminology. And then I got my Ph.D. at Ohio State in sociology with a specialization in criminology. And I started out doing research on corrections and later gangs. And then since the 1980s, I've been doing research almost exclusively on wrongful conviction and more recent years concentrating on also comparing the United States errors that we make with uh, other countries, uh, Canada and uh, much of Europe, to see how we can learn from each other. We actually had a, had a conference in Washington after uh, President Obama took office um, where we uh, brought in people from different continents to talk about these errors and try to figure out how we can reduce these errors. But as you know, we still make far too many of these errors, and it affects people's lives as some of your callers have been have been discussing, it's a, a real tragedy for people. And the thing the public don't often don't understand is every time we get the wrong person, the real offender is still out there committing crimes. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely the truth. Now, I want to uh, jump back to a little bit of, of uh, when you said at the beginning of your career, and, and hopefully you can shed a little bit of light on this, because during the break, Cliff and I and Lisa, we were talking about uh, uh, Florence, Colorado, and the gentleman down there in Supermax, uh, his name is Jim Powell, or Jack Powers, and that was the guy that Cliff was talking about who mm -hmm. had uh, cut off his, his, uh, his scrotum, had, uh, had uh, amputated his fingers and all that kind of stuff. Now, I was reading a little bit about Mr. Powers. When he first got into the system, he was convicted of robbery, got sentenced to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. He witnessed the murder of another man in prison, and because he tried to help him, he got on the hit list, so to speak, of the, of the Aryan Brotherhood. So they shipped him around from prison to prison uh, under protective watch, so to speak. He ended up in Florence under the maximum security, and they say that before all of that started happening, 
this man had no signs of mental illness. He had no tattoos. If you see pictures of him now, he has tattoos all over his body. Body parts are missing and that type of thing. So, Mr. Huff, what would drive a person to do this when they, when they first went in? They say there were no signs at all of mental illness uh, for this man. Well, um People have different reactions to prison, and people are treated differently depending on the offenses that they're allegedly committed, some of whom we know were not offenses because they were wrongfully convicted. But imagine being in prison for something you didn't do. Uh, You know the famous case of Randall Dale Adams uh, that resulted in that wonderful movie, The Thin Blue Line. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just showed that in my class today. I teach 110 students uh, every fall in a course called Miscarriages of Justice. And uh, that case occurred, uh, you know, a long time ago, and I got to know Randall Dale Adams quite, a, quite well because I was at Ohio State at the time, and he was from uh, just outside Columbus, Ohio. I had him lecture at Ohio State, had him talk about what it was like. Now imagine, and you say, what can this do to people? Here's a guy who didn't have any criminal record in this case. Uh, he was white. Many of these folks are, are African-American or minorities. He happened to be a white guy. Um, he always grew up respecting law enforcement, had a relative that was an Ohio State Patrol officer, and he never liked criminals. Now he's in prison in Texas for killing a Dallas cop, but he didn't do it. And he said, all the time I was in prison, a lot of the other prisoners thought I was a hero because I killed a cop. The guards hated me because they thought I killed a cop. And it was a, a surreal experience for him. Uh, so... You know, we've had people in prison who uh, also were wrongfully convicted who were thought to be child molesters. Well, some of them had boiling water poured on them. Some of them were attacked by other inmates. As you know, in a, in a prison institution like where I used to work when I was, uh, when I was a younger fellow, um, the lowest on the totem pole are um, the child molesters and second are the rapists. And the reason why is it's a real man's world, and those guys are not looked at as real men. If you attack a child or a woman, you're not going to be respected by the other inmates. And they'll get at you. They'll hurt you if they can. So a lot of things happen, and uh, people get into different situations where it can change their entire lives. A lot of them come out with PTSD. Um, you know, best study was done in, in England by Adrian Grounds. He started out, he wasn't really prepared to find very much, but when he got done interviewing people that had been wrongfully convicted, he determined that they were a lot like people that had survived natural disasters or had been uh, uh, involved in being victimized by terrorism and other things like that. Being in prison had just as much of a bad toll on them, and they had just as much PTSD as a, somebody coming back from a, battles in the war. Wow. So now if we can shift to the discussion uh, as far as you were saying, uh, comparing the conditions in the prisons uh, of the United States to some of the other countries, and uh, and and you were saying that y'all this, that during some of those conferences there was discussion of errors. Now you know, and, and I'm gonna, I'm going to kind of mix it up just a little bit here from the standpoint of now the definition of an error is a mistake or an inaccuracy or a miscalculation or a blunder or an oversight. Mm-hmm. Now we know that there are cases, uh, and you know the percentages are out there. We'll pull them up here in a moment. But there are a, a great number of percentages of uh, wrongful convictions are, are calculated. I mean, it's not a miscalculation. They are calculated on the part of either an investigator or a prosecutor. 
So when we look at compared to other countries, I mean, did, did the conferences get into those kind of discussions as well as to the motives behind some of these types of problems that exist? Well, absolutely, and you're quite right. When you look at the um, the National Registry of Exonerations, for example, with over 1,300 uh, or 1,400 uh, exonerations, that includes DNA-based, non-DNA-based. Uh, you also find that there are exonerations that in cases where crimes were alleged that never even occurred. And so uh, when you look at the different uh, different countries around the world, and I've looked a lot at many European countries, uh, for one thing, <clears throat> Uh, they don't have the adversarial system outside of England. They have the continental inquisitorial system. Without going into a lot of detail, <clears throat> the difference is they're focused on a search for the truth, whereas in the United States our system, our adversarial system, assumes that the prosecution will go all out to prove, uh, you know, some of the prosecutors forget that their job is to pursue justice, and they think their job is to pursue convictions, and that's not their job. In fact, that's unethical for them to take that approach. Nonetheless, in the adversarial system that pits the prosecution against the defense, the fallacy in that system is that you assume the truth will emerge when, in fact, the resources are greatly disproportionate. The public defenders in America are greatly overworked and under-resourced. Prosecutors usually have more resources at their disposal. And the defense attorneys are often dependent on the police investigation to find out what happened. In Europe, in most of Europe, and, and the ones I've studied, uh, European nations that have the continental inquisitorial system, um, everybody's supposed to be searching for the truth. So, for example, the defense attorney can say that he rejects the prosecution's theory of the case, and he offers instead a different theory, and the police have to go out and investigate that theory. Uh, so everybody's supposed to be coming together to find the truth, and prosecutors over there are not, uh, generally are not in most of the areas there, are not elected. So the, that takes the politics out of the system, where in the United States, most prosecutors, <clears throat> as you know, are elected, and um, a lot of the prosecutions become politically motivated. So we have uh, too many unethical prosecutors. Uh, the recent papers that Jim Petro and Nancy and I have been writing, uh, some of which we've titled Prosecutorial Injustice, uh, talk about the uh, uh, hopefully small percentage, but nonetheless seems to be growing, in terms of our awareness, of what we call the rogue prosecutors. And the rogue prosecutors go about their job very differently, and they, they are very unethical. They conceal exculpatory evidence from the, the, the defense that they're required by law to turn over. And we see and now at the National Center for Prosecutor Integrity, with which you're familiar, we find more and more documentation about this. And the, the sad part is virtually nothing happens to these, these people, these prosecutors who are unethical. Usually they don't get disbarred, they don't have a disciplinary action. And even when the courts discover this, this kind of behavior, they generally rule, um, they uphold the conviction and they rule that it was harmless error, that it wouldn't have made any difference in the outcome. And that is what, you know, we, we've, we've looked at that, um, that issue that you're talking about right there. We looked at that quite a few times. And the thing that really gets you is that how, how is it? In 2014, they, there have been studies. I mean, uh, you just laid out how you've looked at it. I'm sure other uh, law professors have looked at it. Other criminology professors have looked at it. How is it that we ha there has not become an amendment 
to the you know the constitutional <laughs> amendment that gave these prosecutors this uh you know this just blanket immunity because that's where the problem is if if you had prosecutors that were subjected to the same type of um you know incarceration the same type of uh, penalties for uh for if they if they get someone and they say they perjured themselves on the stand well if you find a prosecutor that knowingly blatantly and purposely commits misconduct if that prosecutor were uh prosecuted themselves and told that hey you if you bring some false evidence in you lie on the stand or uh, you get a, a witness to lie on the stand, then you're going to be prosecuted for your misconduct. Then it would totally, totally change the uh, the outlook and the paradigm on how the American justice system is laid out. Because you say, just like you say, right now, prosecutors are saying, I'm not, I don't care about justice. It means absolutely nothing to me. I have a political agenda. I need to maintain uh, my job, I need to maintain my 98, 99% conviction ratio. And if that means that I can fabricate evidence, get innocent people in jail, then that's the route that I will take. And I think the the thing that uh, gets me the most is that um, even something as simple as a DNA case, when there's DNA that's found to say, hey, this person that you have locked up is not the perpetrator, we have another person's DNA, they still fight to say no we want to keep them in jail if it's on a if it's on a technicality or whatever we don't even want to have the DNA tested where is the justice and if a prosecutor takes that role and the public doesn't fight him on it or her then how do we the people ever receive justice from what we have uh blindly put in place well i agree with you completely let me just make a couple of brief comments one is you say these prosecutors might have a 98% conviction rate. The public needs to remember they start out with more than 90% through plea bargaining. And in most of Europe, that doesn't happen. You don't have plea bargaining uh, except in cases where the possible sentence is less than a year, considered minor cases. If you if you look at Europe, what we call felonies, they don't do plea bargaining. Uh, so we have the uh, the ability to leverage defendants, often whom are poor and uh, undereducated and may have mental problems. They may be young people who are easily led. They end up engaging in plea bargains without, a lot of times without good legal advice. And that just uh, is not as common in Europe. Uh, so first of all, um, they start out with over 90% through plea bargains. And then, um, you know, to beyond that, let me just say in this last paper I wrote with the Petros, uh, to go back to what you just said, I took it a step further. I said, okay, in criminal prosecutions, we have a Latin phrase, mens rea, which basically means intent. We have to prove intent to commit the act. Okay, what about a prosecutor who intentionally withholds exculpatory evidence from the defense? Is that not intent? Of course That's it right. is. Secondly, in the criminal justice system, we believe in deterrence. We think that we have to punish people to deter them and others from committing crime. Well, what kind of deterrence do we have for these rogue prosecutors? Virtually none. They have immunity. It's almost total. They don't have immunity, by the way. There is a there is an exception. If they get outside the role of a prosecutor and they go out and investigate, uh, they don't have the same immunity. But basically they have blanket immunity, so and nothing happens to them. How is that going to be deterrence? It's not going to be. That's exactly what you just said. Well, what's going to happen to change this if we don't start 
being serious. And so the Petros and I have talked about, you know, start out, if they if they do this knowingly, the least that happens to them is disbarment. They never practice law the rest of their lives. And then they should be liable for criminal or civil penalties uh, for doing this kind of behavior. And I believe, like you said, that would get their attention um, and uh, I think it could change their behavior. The reason that they still have immunity is the argument is, well, you couldn't get anybody to be a prosecutor if you didn't give them immunity. They have to have that protection to do what they think is the best thing to do. Well, what they're supposed to do is pursue justice, not just convictions, and they should do so in a very fair a fair way instead of uh, using tunnel vision where they take the police report um, you know, as uh, as totally correct. It may not be correct. We have some uh, um, some percentage of police officers who are uh, not ethical, who commit perjury, who throw down weapons, who plant weapons. In the Rampart scandal out here in, in California, uh, later made into a movie called Rampart, uh, when Officer Perez testified on the stand, he said, yeah, what we did is we planted evidence and we committed perjury because we had pressure from people above us to, to deal with the crime problem. The Rampart Division's crime rate was very high, and they would come to roll call and say, you guys do something about it. So we thought it was us versus them, and we started committing perjury and planting weapons, uh, planting evidence. And so on the stand, uh, under oath, he admitted all this stuff, and it led to a tremendous scandal in the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, And it's happened elsewhere around the country, so it's very regrettable. And, you know, Dr. Huff, when you mentioned that, uh, you know, a lot of folks say, well, if they didn't, if the prosecutors didn't have some sort of immunity, then you wouldn't get uh, good folks and they wouldn't be able to do what they need to do and so forth and so on. And, and you know, I have to point to uh, District Attorney uh, uh, Watkins uh, down in Dallas County, you know, yeah. where he has the, you know, he, he has has made some great strides with the integrity unit down there and is a model for other uh, 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 offices around the nation, and so you know, folks have I just to look talked at about that, that in class today. By the way, I just told oh, my you? students about. It. Look what's happened in Dallas. Dallas, when Randall Adams was convicted, the DA down there, Henry Wade, who the audience will recognize in the case Roe versus Wade, the abortion case, Henry Wade's office was so corrupt and involved in so many wrongful convictions that the American Bar Association's own criminal justice magazine. Front page, the the cover story one month, said Dallas DA's office win at all costs. Doug Mulder, who prosecuted Adams, was undefeated, and he and some others were uh, heard to say in front of witnesses, uh, any prosecutor can convict a guilty man. It takes a really good prosecutor to convict an innocent man. Wow. And what a chilling statement. That's a chilling statement. So now fast forward. And Randall Adams, by the way, never got a dime from Texas. I knew him. I knew his family. They never apologized to him. They claimed sovereign immunity. They never paid him a dime. Fast forward today, Craig Watkins comes in, the first African-American elected district attorney in Dallas, starts, as you just said, the Conviction Integrity Unit, finds a lot of, because fortunately there was a lot of uh, biological evidence that was still around to be tested, and he found some cases that it resulted in wrongful conviction, quite a few. Also look at Texas today, compensation. Randall got nothing. Randall Adams got nothing. Today, the statute says $85,000 for every year of wrongful imprisonment with no maximum. It's the highest maximum limit in America. So things are turning around, and there are some folks in Texas that realize that they had become kind of the wrongful conviction capital of America. 
And that's the thing. If you if if they don't put a cap on how much a wrongfully convicted person can get once they get out of prison, then it'll get the public to say, hey, you know what? We need to deal with these prosecutors who keep putting people in prison for no reason, for no good law enforcement reason. That And then when they get out and it's shown that they're innocent, then the prosecutor, I mean, uh, then the public has to pay for the pro- prosecutor's misgivings. The, the the public has to pay for the prosecutor's misconduct. And then you get a guy that, you know, says, hey, well, now uh, we, the public of the city, have to pay this guy $100 million because he sued us for the way he was treated in prison. He sued for misconduct. He sued for all these things that happened. And you get a huge lawsuit. That's when the prosecutor's feet are going to be held to the fire. Like, you know what? If this prosecutor hadn't done the things that he did, then we the people wouldn't be paying for his mistakes or or not really mistakes, but for his crimes, actually. So you start adding up the dollar figures that you just mentioned. They're considerable. And then add to that the human misery of all the victims that are victimized by crime while the wrong person is locked up while the real offender is still yeah. out there. In the Randall Adams case, David Harris, who actually killed the Dallas cop, committed more crimes you know, in Germany when he was in the Army, in Dallas, in Orange County, California, eventually killed a person, ended up having to go to death row himself when he's the one who actually killed the cop in the first place. But they overlooked that because he was a juvenile and they thought uh, Randall was a guy they could convict as an adult and get the death penalty. And he was Randall was seventy two hours from execution when the Supreme Court stepped in. So you're you're quite right. I mean, this is a national um challenge that we have. We gotta keep the pressure on. Absolutely. And we have a uh we have a caller on the on the line, Professor Huff. Uh we have the truth on the line. Uh you have a question or comment? Yeah. I wanted to wait until after you get your next guest on. And I'm really enjoying uh, Dr. Huff and what he's talking about is really, really good knowledge. But I want to give the other people a chance, and I'll come on after your next guest. Okay, we will hold you in the queue. Thank you very much for your consideration. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Huff, uh, Dr. Yeah. Huff, you're more you're more than welcome to hang around uh, with us as we get ready to bring on uh, Donald Connery, um, and uh, and and you could share in on that conversation. Right, do you have a few more minutes to share with us? I'll be glad to, and you just let me know when uh, when you need me to depart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so this is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. This evening we're talking about miscarriage of justice, and we just had a, a, a very good conversation with Dr. C. Ronald Huff. And next we're going to bring on Donald, Donald Connery. And uh, uh, Mr. Connery, uh, as an author, independent journalist, and former foreign correspondent, but uh, several years ago, he uh, witnessed or uh, was made wa- aware of a miscarriage of justice, and it made him change his uh, uh, his life's goals, so to speak. So welcome to the program, Mr. Connery. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine, thank you. I'm sitting in uh, Connecticut, Kent, Connecticut. Awesome. So the, the That's weather a long way from where you are. <laughs> Just a but little bit. But we still bit. have innocent people in prison, so it doesn't matter what state you're in. That's right. That's right. And so, Mr. Connery, uh, Dr. Huff is still on the line. And uh, but we wanted to ha- bring you on. And, and uh, because of the fact that, you know, when you got uh, exposed to the case of Peter Riley, 
uh, an 18-year-old, and and I, I assume that was the case that that uh, kind of changed things around and made you uh, kind of get involved in helping to right the wrongful convictions. Tell us a little bit about well, that. Well, well, let me, let me say that we're talking about something that goes back, well, uh, decades now, and that was 1973. If I have any uh, distinction or uniqueness in in this whole world of uh, what I call the innocence movement or the exposure of wrongful convictions, it's probably because I'm the only uh, person, or certainly journalist, who was a a, a specialist in international affairs as a foreign correspondent for Time magazine and Life, and working in what were known as police states, the -hmm. Soviet Union and various dictatorships, around the world, and then I came home, uh, settled in Connecticut, and uh, within a couple of years, we had a murder case, and uh, this 18-year-old boy, Peter Riley, found his mother murdered, and within 24 hours, the state police had his, forced him to confess, and he was convicted, and uh, it took a lot of effort to save him, uh, but he was exonerated pretty quickly because of the uproar. So that's how, that's how I got a, a career change from uh, my uh, my specialty of uh, foreign policy into the world of criminal justice uh, and what I call the uh, criminally unjust criminal justice system. So that's been a long story. And when we look at the justice system as we call it in America, I mean, you did – uh, international um, investigative reporting. Uh, you've been to other places. You you you've looked at uh, you know what's going on around the world. And and a lot of times, you know, we hear people say, "You'll hear it in the media. You'll hear people make comments." Oh, we have the best criminal justice system in the world. But my contention is, how do we call it that in the state that it's in? I mean, uh, we used to say we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But if the you know, if the if the if the baby has passed away, we need to go ahead and bury him and say, you know what, the baby has passed away. Let's bury the baby. Let's empty the putrid bathwater and let's start over. And this time, perhaps we can get it right. Because you you know, it's it's such a fallacy that we as American as the American people. Uh, our our mass, um, you know, uh, big media that we present to the world that oh, the criminal justice system in America is great, it's it's perfect. You can't find anything better anywhere in the world. You know, we I, I looked at pictures of what they call you know ten best prisons in the world, and they had pictures of Norway where they give these men a it, it's a it's still a sense of dignity. Even though they are in prison, to to be taken away from your family, to have your your freedom taken away, that is punishment enough. In America, we say, well, well actually, cram- I, let, me, let me interrupt you. Go ahead, if, go if ahead. I may. I'm only the guest. About I, well, my first book was called The Scandinavians. It has about 500 pages on the uh, Scandinavian countries. I visited uh, uh, prisons in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, Finland. Uh, yeah, it is a humane. Uh, Way of uh, of dealing with uh, with people who are, those who are guilty. Uh, there may have been some innocent people, but in any event, um, it, there is a night and day difference uh, in, in in some attitudes about imprisoning people. This question about 
uh, let's say that most Americans, certainly everyone who hasn't had to run into the system, uh, may well feel that we have the best system in the world because, in fact, um, uh, so much of the world has truly brutal, uh, terrible, uh, corrupt um, law enforcement uh, systems. E even in a country like uh, India where we lived, uh, you can expect uh, corruption up and down the whole system. So And so you could say that, on the whole, the American justice uh, system, the whole business of uh, of protecting the public from crime and 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 imprisoning uh, those who deserve punishment uh, may work well enough most of the time because an awful lot of people are committing crimes and they're guilty and they go to prison, except it's sort of really gotten out of hand. So one way of thinking about it is that yeah, if if the civilian airline system works well enough uh, most of the time because most airplanes uh, reach their destination and no one gets killed. But unfortunately, um, one out of 10 planes uh, crashes. Well, then something is wrong and nobody would want to fly a plane. So uh, we have uh, a system that has been full of error and denial and the, the prisons packed with people who have outrageous sentences that they, they don't deserve, and a, and a high percentage of people who are wrongly convicted. And that's got to change, and in fact it is, slowly. Exactly. That's what we have to change, because your analogy of you know airline, we, we wouldn't have anybody flying anywhere. If you say, well, one out of ten planes is coming down, uh, no one would fly anywhere. Uh, people would just take you know mass transit on the ground, and get to where they're to where they're going. Um, and so, uh, Mr. Connery, Can I just add, add something to that. Oh, go ahead, Professor. Go yeah, ahead. yeah. Just to follow up on Mr. Connery's point, which is a very very important point. And, and as he knows, when those planes crash on occasion or r trains get derailed, we have a massive investigation. Mm -hmm. Yep. The NTSB goes and investigates. What happens when an innocent person gets sent to prison and we discover that they're they're innocent? We don't tend to have anything like that. We don't take it as seriously as we do these other tragedies, but we should. As a matter, as a matter of fact, uh, the the um, the 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 inspection of any airplane crash, especially any civilian airliner, is so immediate and so intense and so um, effective that it's far safer to fly than to drive your car to the airport. Uh, so it's possible to take even a extremely complicated system with millions of people flying in the air all the time and have a very very low error rate. Now, when, when I uh, excuse me for just ex going on with this question of percentages, uh, when I uh, have listened to some previous broadcast on this um, network, um, I've heard the reference to there may be forty thousand uh, innocent people in prison. Well, I think that's less than half the, of the reality. Uh, there are 2.3 million people in prison. And um, I, I think the error rate, the, those who are actually wrongly convicted, conservatively is at 5%. So even if we took a 2 million population prison, a 5% error rate is 100,000. And it's actually more than that. Now, there aren't any statistical uh, support 
There is no statistical support for that figure. But I've been around the uh, this system long enough, and I've talked talking to just about everybody who's been at the forefront of wrongful convictions to believe that most most of us uh, think it's in that area of five percent. I'd be interested in what uh, Professor Huff uh, has to say to that. Uh, yeah, well, you know, back in the 80s when um, I had an Israeli Ph.D. student and we did uh, a study in, in involving his dissertation. We so did you the did. First, we did the first um, survey to try to estimate, uh, it's not an exact estimate, but a survey of opinions of, of criminal justice officials and some public defenders. I won't go into all the details that take too long, but we came well, up with a... Well, it was a pioneering report. I remember that. Well, well, thank you. And uh, uh, even back then, before people recognized, uh, you know, these DNA exonerations and before it was in the news, when yeah. people were still in pretty much in denial, that that study resulted in an estimate of half of 1%, which sounded to the public like, well, that must be pretty reassuring. So then I showed them the numbers. Even if the system were 99.5% accurate, that meant 6,000 people every year just in the felonies that were being wrongfully convicted. And mm-hmm. it's a different question to say how many are in prison. As you just said, it could be uh, you know tens of thousands. And so if we look at Sam Gross in my recent book, Sam Gross from Michigan Law School who works on the National Exonerations Registry, he, yeah. he says that he believes it's somewhere between 3 and 5%. And so if you look at that estimate, uh, as Sam says, there's probably at least – 25,000 or so innocent people in prison. It may be as high as 50,000 or 100,000. No one really knows for sure, but we know that we keep making these errors. And going back to, you know, the point that you made about plane crashes, the investigations that that occur, we learn every time we learn from those investigations how to make it safer. We're not learning from these wrongful convictions because we don't do these massive investigations and we don't learn from our mistakes. That's right, and they're the the uh, prison complex, the industrial complex of the prison system does not want to, uh, you know, find out how to correct the errors. That is not what they want to do. And and uh, we uh, we have the the truth. We're going to take her call now. Um, got her on the line. The truth. You can go ahead with your question or your comment now. Yeah, I think uh, I I agree with your guest tonight on the fact that. Um, the reason why we investigate plane crashes and what have you to see why is the type of people that fly. I I said one time that isn't it strange that we could have all these plane crashes, they kind of come in spurts and we get a lot of plane crashes, but the president's plane never crashed. (laughs) So it tells me that, okay, it's about who we value and who we don't value, whether whether or not we think it's important. And that's the way the prison system is. The people that's in prison don't have any value. So we don't worry about it. We do nothing about it. We we talk about what's wrong, but we don't do anything about it because these, these are the outcasts of society. That's the way we view them. So something that's not that doesn't have any value, we don't usually – investigate or try to find out, you know, what's wrong and, and really who cares. And, and I think for the most part, a lot of our society truly believes that if you're in prison, you did something to be there. And I think as long as we have that mindset that if you're in prison, you did something wrong. Now, as a pastor, I, 
I uh I we had a service in Florence, Colorado, which is called the number one worst prison in the country. It's known as the Rock as the as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. And mm-hmm. we went to the maximum security. We had services there for five years. Now, what what alarmed me, I guess, was from what I had heard, you wouldn't expect anybody to say they're guilty of something. But many of those guys that were in that prison, I was surprised at how many came up to me and said, I deserve to be here or, or I did do something wrong. And there were few that said, I don't deserve to be here. I didn't do anything wrong. And so when I looked at how many people actually confessed to it, and they were in prison, and they didn't try to make you think they were this, uh, you know, honest uh, uh, people of integrity. They didn't try to make you feel that way. And so, but I think we don't really care as a society. And it's kind of a selfish attitude that we have. If it's, if it's not in my family, if it's not in my house or whatever, then it's not that important. So why worry about it? And so we go on with our lives. I'm always alarmed at when the when our media comes on and they report somebody who's been released from prison, uh, and they've been there 20, 30, 40 years. They they talk about it and tell you, you know, he's out of prison or whatever. And almost in the next breath, before that, before the story's barely done, they they go on to something else. It seems like nobody really cares. Well, he was in prison for 30 years. He lost 30 years of his life. How many family members died while he was there? Did his mom and dad die? Well, did he lose siblings while he was there? Nobody seems to care about the after, aftermath of all this stuff. And so that's what you see every time. And I think you really don't understand how painful it is until you actually have, have it happen to you. And once it happens to you, then I think it's a whole different story. Because I'm telling you, I truly believed in the system. I raised my children to believe in the system. To If you do the right thing, if you're honest, you go to school, you get your education, and you uh, remain a good citizen and one of integrity and what have you, and you work hard and you can have the American dream, it's all such a lie. And when it happened in our family, I could I think, what do I say now? And when I stand before our church members, I think I used to could say, you can believe in it. But, but I still think I disagree with the fact that we have the best system just because other systems are 100% worse than ours. We're still in the bad group. That's like somebody uh, says, you know, I don't think I'm that bad. I only weigh 300 pounds. And so what makes you any better from the person who weighs 400? you got the same problems. And so the same thing applies here. It looks like it's very hard in this country for us to acknowledge we have a sucking system. That's really, it's just, it's dead, dead, dead. There's no life in it. There's no caring. There's nobody trying. I see people out here, a few people trying to make a difference. But the system is so large, it's going to take a lot of voices. People right. saying, what do we can do? I comment on, can I comment on that? Because uh, I'm not going, to, I'm not going to, um, to say that anything you've said is not right. Uh, it's simply that uh, it, 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 if, if, uh, if that's too much the focus, 
um, that that we, we may despair. When in fact, uh, and I've been uh, involved in this now for four decades, I think what's been happening in the last 20 years, as uh, and more recently, uh, should give us some reason to to believe that change can happen, and in fact, that change is happening. Now, yesterday, I was in Chicago at the uh, Northwestern Law School uh, at the Center on Wrongful Convictions um, Conviction Integrity Conference, and I've been to most of the uh, conferences at the center uh, for, for, for years now, 15 or so years, and this was the most mind-blowing uh, uh, gathering because up there in the stage were a whole bunch of of district attorneys from important cities, from Santa Clara, California, to Brooklyn, with Chicago in between, uh, talking about uh, what has only uh, happened in the last few years, which are the um, those district attorneys' offices, which are now setting up special units to to look into uh, instances of apparent wrongful uh, imprisonment and wrongful convictions. And then at the end of the conference, I took a taxi back to O'Hare Airport with the star of the conference, uh, who was Kenneth uh, Thompson, uh, the uh, the uh, newly elected district attorney of uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, where I grew up, by the way. And he has um, taken over uh, from a long-serving district attorney, Mr. Hines, who uh, just overlooked any number of wrongful convictions. And it, within only the last months, less than a year, Kenneth Thompson, the first black district attorney in this uh, uh, in Brooklyn, uh, heading that major major office, there have been ten exonerations, mostly because he was cleaning up after a corrupt cop who had uh, forced false false confessions. In any event, not to go on and monopolize anything. The thing is that uh, more and more prosecutor offices are almost certainly going to have units looking into cases of apparent wrongful conviction. And this is the latest result, latest wave of what you might call the innocence movement that began mostly when DNA came into the picture in the 1980s. So we now have the innocence projects at a great deal of focus and media attention to wrongful convictions. And I think that should give us some hope that the system can be improved faster than we may think. Yeah, and and, and, and I agree that, that, that we've made some changes, but when you think about how many people are still left in prison and are incarcerated, and I'm talking about the wrong, wrongfully convicted ones, uh, it's a very slow move to them. But to us that's on the outside, we may think more or less that, you know, it is it is moving, but I think if if I'm in prison and somebody comes and says, you know, we're making really good progress and I've been sitting here for 10, 15, 20 years and I'm, I'm innocent, but nobody cares enough to really dig into it 100% and say, wait a minute, let us see what we can do. I, I, I'm a believer that uh, for the most part, that if we actually got everybody out of prison that was innocent, we have a lot of empty prisons. But if we get these crooked prosecutors and corrupt judges, 
and corrupt police officers that are, that are that are that are doing so much damage to our system. If they could be put in prison, we'd have to be on the move. And so there's a lot of things I agree that there is change, but the change is extremely slow when you think about how fast life is moving for people and all of us. We're here for a short time. And so surely. Pardon me? It is too slow. It's absolutely too slow. So is the right And I think that's what bothers me is that it's so slow because people are dying and they're not living their lives. And we're only allotted a short time here. And so well, even though you're you? making some progress, it's surely not fast enough, and I think we could speed it up. I think we could well, do hold more. On, hold on, hold on. Let, let, me, let me just say that I think uh, you're focusing on what's, uh, what is necessary for a, a more massive movement to free the innocent, and it probably is a matter of, of national leadership. We have an insufficient uh, attention from everyone. Oh, I believe that. From the I White House 100%. to the Congress. In, in, in this issue. Now, one reason for this is that uh, we have 50 states, and they have their separate criminal justice systems, and some of them work better than others, and it's a it's going to be a very, very difficult thing to move faster. And one right. of these days, one of these days, we'll have more leadership on the national level and more public outrage as more and more of these cases uh, come to attention. I believe that. I, I agree with that 100% that our leadership is really, really almost non-existent. Uh, and also, uh, even when they had the big uh, big uh, riot in Ferguson, and somebody said, where are the leaders? We are lacking in leadership, and we don't have enough voices, enough people that's outraged by what's happening. But I think once we get that in place, I think we will see a a much faster movement if we have good leaders, solid leadership, and also plenty of people that's screaming from the mountaintop that there's got to be a change. This can't go on. I think if we get enough voices and enough leadership that we can really make a difference, and it wouldn't take nearly as long. Actually, we are getting slowly more voices in Washington, even some conservative uh uh, congressmen and senators are recognizing oh, I agree with that. the high cost of, of imprisonment mm-hmm. and and the uh, draconian uh, sentences and the treatment of juveniles. And uh, honestly, 20 years ago, nobody, hardly anybody, was paying any attention to any of this. And now right. we have a lot more a lot more attention than we ever did. Now, can we hear from Professor Huff on this? Yes, I, I was going to say I think that uh, another. Another optimistic note is that we see now even people like Rand Paul speaking out about over-incarceration, and and that's what you're referring to. And then we see on the California uh, ballot for this election coming up um, here in November, uh, we have uh, uh, a ballot issue that would greatly reduce the over-incarceration in California and concentrate more on serious violent crimes and not uh, not over-incarcerate like California's been doing for so long. And so uh, I've said for many years, and we're beginning to see it happen, that we would eventually see a coming together of programmatic liberals and fiscal conservatives. And we're seeing yeah, that I now because that. we just can't afford to keep pay, paying all this money. It costs $60,000 per prisoner in California. Uh, right. Now, uh, you know where that money largely comes from is the higher education budget, because if you look at any state budget 
you find that a, a lot of the expenditures are for public safety in one way or another, law enforcement, prisons, et cetera. And if you look at the budget, uh, a lot of things are, are nailed down. They're entitlements. You cannot, you don't have any degrees of freedom to mess with K through 12 education, really, because you have to have K through 12 education. You have welfare requirements that are mandated. But you start looking at state budgets, and, and, and where do they find these degrees of freedom? The higher education budget, because they, a lot of these legislators think that that's a luxury and that um, a lot of their constituents' kids don't go to college. And so they say, well, we'll protect K-12, through but we'll cut the higher education budget. Well, what that does then, the kids that go to college are having higher and higher tuitions and, and fees that they're paying, and that's a barrier to entry for a lot of kids that don't have that money, and it disproportionately affects minorities. So yes, we're robbing higher education and uh, a lot of these prevention programs in order to keep fueling uh, prison growth. In California, a lot of that was because uh, the, uh, the the union that represents the correctional officers and, and a lot of the peace officers uh, was getting more and more uh, guards hired because every time the prison population went up, they would hire more guards. So as I told my students, who's watching the public interest here? That may be yes. fine for the... Correctional Peace Officers Union, and it may be fine for the prison industrial complex that builds the prisons and, and supplies them with food and so forth. They're all making a profit, while the taxpayers are are the ones that are footing the bill. Yeah. Now, so, now, now, man, you can I get you to speak to the fact that when we have the educational system set up in the prison, that you can go there and you can get your degree or whatever. I I I think what what is a the problem there is that after they do that in the prison and they get their education or their degree, but when they get out, they never remove felons from the records. Therefore, no matter how much you educate yourself in prison, when you get out, it it does you no good. Well, first of all, you know a lot of those programs have been cut back, and it's right. not as easy to get a college degree in prison as it used to be. I know people who started those programs back in Ohio, and um, I thought a lot of them were really very progressive, uh, as along with a lot of other programs, but they've been cut back through budget cuts. Um, and the other thing is that uh, I always tell my students, you can become an ex-con, but the challenge is how do you become an ex-ex-con? And people yeah. always say, you know, well, how do you get rid of that stigma? So even if you're wrongfully convicted and you're later exonerated, you go out to, to look for a job, People say, were you ever arrested for a crime, which is not the question they should ask. Or even, right. they, you know, were you ever convicted of a crime? And they have to say yes. But right. they say, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't guilty. Well, a lot of employers still aren't going to hire you. And so, you know, how do you become an ex-ex con? And uh, people say, well, you know, unemployment causes crime. Well, guess what? Crime also causes unemployment. And even, yeah. if, you, even if they believe you committed a crime, they don't want to employ you. So no, they don't. Read. And so, and so, what? And so, what do the people who get out of prison? What do they do? I think that's why we have so many repeat, uh, repeat offenders that's going back because when they get out, they're trying their best to make a life for themselves. But they find out whatever they they uh, trade in, if they done if they took a trade in prison or or got some kind of degree or whatever. When they get out, it's no good to them anyway. So is that not wasted money for us to do that in the prison if they're going to come out? And still not be able to be employed? Well, and people don't pay attention to the overall economy. They talk about the economy as if it's all the legal economy. It's not. Right. There's, a, there's the illegal economy. So for a lot of people, 
especially uh, uh, people who don't have uh, uh, good educational backgrounds and can't find jobs easily. They can sell drugs. They can find other ways to make money in the illeg- illegitimate economy. So it competes with the legal economy. And so, to me, our challenge as, uh, as the citizens of the United States is to provide a legitimate economy that can employ everybody that wants to get a job. But we don't yeah. we're far from that. We're far from that. Right. And I think I think that's probably some of the biggest problem that we've got uh, for, for repeat offenders because they end up re, uh, resorting back to the thing that took them there in the first place because they don't know any other way in which to survive. And so if I can't survive, then I have to go back to what I used to do. But if you're going to if you're going to educate them, at least let them have an have an open door somewhere when they enter back into the economy. Uh, but I just want to say this too, real quickly, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna get off of here. Um, you know, prison. I'm, I met with a group of um, group of uh, chaplains that came down to Denver for the for the for the uh, for the chaplain convention that was here, and I was surprised when we had a meeting with them that they said to me that prison does not rehabilitate anybody. He said, in fact, prison uh, most people don't survive prison. And so for us to say we are rehabilitating them, uh, the fact is that, we, that we're really not, because to rehabilitate them is to restore whatever that was good in this person or, 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 and to restore their reputation as sort. But when I talked to them, he said, well, it's just not, it doesn't work. He said prison is not rehabilitation. It is it is punishment and abuse, and so how how do we somehow change that back to when it really started? When prison started many many years ago, it, people were rehabilitated. Now people are are, are being uh, actually abused in the prison system by the guards and what have you who are there. How do we get somehow get our voice in there to say okay? It's not your job to abuse me. If I did something wrong and I'm, I'm, I've been sent to prison, my, my, my freedom has been taken away, which is punishment in itself. So then why, are we, why do we have the abuse that we have going on in the prison with the guards or what have you? And the people are suffering in prison after they get there. I have a son who was wrongly convicted. He went there. His back is destroyed. He was there for seven years. And when he got out and went to a chiropractor, the chiropractor said, I've never seen a back structure destroyed like this. And so, so when I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, why can't we have at least uh, a decent bed or something that these people really feel like they have something to hold on to? So though, though uh, Dr. Samuel is saying, uh, just keep hope. Well, you have to give me something I can look forward to, something. But if you keep tearing me down every time I try to get up or somebody's abusing me, I don't get better from abuse. I, I'm, I'm eventually destroyed if, it, if, it's not, if somebody doesn't stop it. Well, massive incarceration has overwhelmed the resources that we have. And back when I worked in a maximum security institution as director of social work, I had eight social workers working for me and 1,500 people locked up. Wow. So you can only do so much. And we did have family therapy on visiting day, and we did have programs. We, At the place I worked, we used to pioneer some things like music therapy and pet therapy. And there were people who were rehabilitated. 
But the more we've gotten into massive incarceration, the more the resources right. have been overwhelmed by the numbers, and we end up warehousing people. Right. Well, it's good talking to you. I I, I, I hope that we do see something that Just Cause will continue to work for the cause that they're working for, and that is that we might get the wrongly convicted out and that we will at least respect people as human beings regardless of what crime that they may commit and, and regardless of how gross it may be, is that they're still human beings and to abuse anybody is is just an injustice all around. And so I, I hope we keep fighting for that. And it's so good to talk to both of you guys tonight and, and, to, and to know that you care. It comes across that you really care, and I can have, I have an appreciation for that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, go ahead, Mr. Conner. Yeah, I don't know what... I don't know whether I should respond to questions or or to go ahead and and say what's on my mind. Uh, the, the the thing is, you you could apply to any number of uh, situations, including the uh, the poverty in this country and uh, to uh, and racism and and uh, the the failures of our education system. Uh, most of the population is much too satisfied with things as they are, but again. Uh, the, the change is underway. Uh, I, if, in terms of you know, back to the main theme of of the we, if we have a prison system which is, and now overwhelmingly uh, huge and unnecessarily uh, uh, huge in terms of the number of people incarcerated, uh, uh, and it's out of uh, you know it's almost too much to fix, unless we get uh, in, uh, you know into substantial reforms. The, the, the fact still is that uh, there is more attention being paid now than ever before to the very problems uh, that we're discussing, and it's becoming uh, more of a uh, political issue. And if there are to be so, uh, solutions, it's going to have to be done by pe- people who get into elected offices at, at national and state levels and work to make a change. Um one one reason for optimism is that the the emphasis that has been given to exonerations over the past ten and fifteen and twenty years has kind of fueled a, a great deal of interest in the subject. Now, one of one of the uh, key figures at the conference in uh, Chicago that I attended yesterday was was the uh, Wisconsin Law School professor uh, Keith Finley. He was currently the president of the Innocence Network, um, which is an affiliation of more than 60 innocence projects in the U.S. and Canada, United Kingdom, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands, France, Italy, South Africa. I mean, this thing began in the United States and now has spread spread to even to the countries which have nothing like our problems of mass incarceration and uh, and too many uh, wrongly convicted so that the very existence of the innocence movement uh, is is a uh, a sign of, of of change now one thing that professor finley pointed out yesterday is that the more that the prosecutors who i've i've always felt these these are the kind of the gatekeepers of the system who who goes to prison or who ultimately will go through the process the prosecutors are the gatekeepers, and they have maintained over, you know, forever the idea that oh, we we don't make mistakes, or the everybody goes to prison is guilty, and this is changing. 
Now, if prosecutors have a new ethic and a new paradigm, a willingness to concede that mistakes are made and understanding why they're made, false confessions, etc., and if they set up, if more and more prosecutor officers actually pay attention to getting people out of prison who don't belong there, well, it will be a, a, a sea change. Because, um, uh, to conclude, uh, even when a state, for example, has an innocence project and a number of people working to free particular numbers of, of, of people they've identified as innocent in prison, they have to spend years often trying to put a case together to persuade the court systems and the prosecutors uh, that this person deserves exoneration. But if the prosecutors themselves are willing to take on cases that are brought to them that are legitimate, well, they have the police histories, they have the records, they can move, they have power. And I'm, I'm honestly uh, uh, encouraging everyone listening to take a look, for example, Google the very words conviction integrity units and see what's happening. Uh, this began in Dallas uh, uh, County, Texas uh, in 2007 under a black new district attorney, Craig Watkins. Right. And he has set the pace for something which is coming. And I find it, you know, hopeful. Absolutely. And that's a very um, well point that you make. I wanted to, um, you know, kind of shift the the conversation. First, uh, to continue with the conversation there in St. Louis, uh, one of our research team just sent me an article that says St. Louis City will no longer require job applicants to disclose felony convictions. This came out October 14th of this year. Mayor Francis Slay announced that St. Louis would no longer require applicants for city jobs to disclose felony convictions. Millions of Americans have been convicted of felonies. Many of them have paid their debt to society and are willing to earn a second chance. Some jobs are uh, subject to regulations, and the city, the city is legally required to do background checks, such as at the airport or police department. But that uh, kind of speaks to the fact that, hey, there are uh, some cities that are saying, hey, you know, we, we have to shift the paradigm to deal with the fact of what's going on with those who are incarcerated. We cannot just, you know, throw people away. They have to be reintegrated back into society. So that kind of yep. speaks to your point that there is, um, you know, more attention being brought to to what's going on. And I, I, I want to ask a, a question. Uh, we, um, you know, want to make sure that attention is, is kept on the IRP6 case, which is our flagship case here at A Just Cause and the thing that has happened there. Um, the the fact that they have been wrongly incarcerated for uh, you know going into debt as as small businessmen and how the system uh, just works against you uh, once you are brought uh, under indictment. Uh, we did give you guys a, a little bit of background on them and and understand that you've checked into it and wanted to get your thoughts on um, how the system is 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 handling uh, that case and. Uh, Professor Huff, uh, we'll we'll go to you first about uh, what your thoughts are on what you've learned about the case. I mean, the things that uh, that really stand out are there's a Fifth Amendment violation against self-incrimination. There was a, a disallowed expert witness testimony by the judge. Well, not disallowed, but the judge refused to allow an expert witness to testify during the case. And then there was a uh, speedy trial violation that. 
um, you know, the even the appellate court said, yeah, it was a constitutional violation, but you got to kind of look at other prongs of, of uh, what happened. What are, what are your thoughts there, Professor Huff? Well, first I would say by a disclaimer, I don't claim to be an expert on the case itself, but from what I've read about the case, <clears throat> the fundamental question I had is why it ended up in the criminal justice system to begin with. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Even if the allegations were correct, it belonged in the civil system, not in the criminal system. Uh, and... and uh, there's, a, there's an example here of overreach by the prosecutors, uh, I believe, in my opinion. Uh, I've seen that happen here locally. <clears throat> we had a case here where uh, 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 an individual who was a prominent CEO of a corporation, uh, a big bene- benefactor of, of the university where I teach, University of California, Irvine, he was charged uh, with uh, backdating um, uh, stock, stock options for people in his corporation and when I heard about this charge, I'm like, I can't believe that he would ever do that. Well, uh, it turned out that the prosecutor behaved so unethically that the federal judge threw out the charges and lectured the prosecutor on ethical behavior. Uh, wow. And this judge, Carmack Carney is his name, uh, is known to be an independent thinker. He does the right thing no matter what anybody thinks. He just absolutely threw out the entire case because in that case the prosecutor's had acted unprofessionally and unethically in what they did behind the scenes. And he became aware of it, and he was quite irate. So I think we see overreach, overcharging, and we see unethical behavior by some of these prosecutors that needs to be sanctioned uh, much more than it is. In that case that uh, you're referring to, uh, I just don't even think it belongs in the criminal justice system to begin with. And uh, certainly they shouldn't be two years languishing in prison uh, for this uh, for this allegation, when in fact the, a lot of the facts that I know about the case suggest that they should not have been in, in prison. They were traveling as businessmen, respected businessmen, traveling even abroad, uh, yes. and never did never were an escape risk. And so, why they couldn't be out on bail, or at the very least handled through some type of electronic monitoring or something? Why they have to be in prison? I have no idea. Absolutely, and, and Mr. Connery, before. We go to you uh, to get your take on it. Um, you know, uh, Professor, you make a very astute <laughs> uh, observation. observation there. Yep. You said that you don't you don't even know how this got to the criminal justice. Well, the FBI actually made a statement to one of the staffing companies that uh, IRP Solutions, the company that uh, IRP Six are the executives of. They made a statement to one of the companies when they reached out to the FBI and said, "said Look, you have debt with this company. You need to take this up civilly. There's nothing the FBI can do for you." So the the question then is, how does the FBI, on one hand, say this is a civil issue? You need to take it up civilly. It's a debt collection case, and the FBI does not get into those type of matters. And then on the other hand, the FBI. Uh, another, you know, that was the Denver office of the FBI, the Colorado Springs office of the FBI, continued to, uh, you know, chase down a unicorn and and <laughs> come up with some kind of way to get an indictment. And with all the, the activity that went on, you know, uh, leaking sealed court documents, going about uh, harassing family members, uh, subpoenaing church records uh, of the IRP six executives, uh, the church that they all uh, went to, all the things that happened there, and the bottom line, this never should have made it to to, to federal court. How they got an indictment, uh, well, you know, say the federal government can indict a ham sandwich, so 
So that's kind of a, a, a no-brainer. It's but called unethical yeah, prosecution. The, exactly. Well, this is the, where you. This is where you. you re, this requires judicial leadership. I like the judge I mentioned here, Carmack Carney, who uh, who had the courage to throw this out of court. We need to have judges that don't just rubber stamp things, but take a careful look at things and stand up for, for principles and for justice and for fairness. And uh, without saying, you know, that, that any particular judge is at fault in this case, I just make a general observation that we found in our research that there's too many people engaging in tunnel vision from the very first investigation all the way through the court system, rubber stamping things when they should be asking hard questions about the evidence. Absolutely. Um, Mr. Connery, you, you want to go ahead and comment? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting here feeling grateful that you asked Professor Huff to address this first because I think he's much better qualified as an <laughs> academic and a, a person with long history in a variety of criminal justice uh, or, or just uh, the legal system. Um, You're being too modest. <laughs> uh, yeah, except that my focus has, has been on these uh, uh, major crime cases that have led, uh, to, uh, to, you know, murder cases and so on, uh, uh, which have led to the more spectacular exonerations like the Central Park Five and so on. Right. As I read this material about this particular case, I'm, I have to confess my mind began to swim. It's like uh, reading uh, reading the worst kind of a murder investigation that goes off the rails and the actual wow. perpetrators uh, uh, have, have been let free because of the, of the blind focus on the most convenient suspect. And the whole system starts breaking down at the beginning with the police. And then the prosecutors use their power to, um, to bring a, a man to trial uh, or a woman and, and ultimately get a conviction with a, with a judge who's sleeping through the whole thing and defense attorneys who aren't doing their job. And, you know, uh, for all these years I've been involved in these things, I'm still outraged, and I'm, and I'm you know, the mind boggles at some of the stuff that goes on. Uh, as I got into the details, I was thinking I was, I'm going to have to spend a week understanding uh, the abuse of prosecutorial power here. Uh, if any case that I've come across lately of this nature... Uh, illustrates uh, how uh, the extraordinary power that prosecutors at all levels have. Uh, this certainly illustrates it. Uh, a, a district attorney uh, is, is more powerful in many ways, many, many ways, than the president of the United States. And if he messes up and, and behaves like a criminal himself by concealing evidence or overusing his power, he almost will never have to uh, pay any punishment in fact, he may be rewarded down the road by be, being elected attorney general or something. You read and this was, case, it reminds me of a fantasy like Alice in Wonderland, except it's not a fantasy and people's lives are being ruined. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And, this, and you this, know, I, uh, go ahead, Mr. Conner. Let me just say that, that uh, again, I'm, I'm giving you a very personal reaction here because I'm, I've been reading uh, my friend uh, Brian Stevenson of the uh, uh, Justice uh, uh, initiative in in um, uh, Alabama, Montgomery, and his, his latest book a uh, it, is, it is, is Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. And he describes at great length a case I'm extremely familiar with, Walter McMillian uh, of uh, Monroe County uh, in Alabama, who uh, was put on death row even before uh, he was brought to trial, and then, of course, was convicted. 
And at that point, uh, upon conviction, having uh, bent every rule possible to win the conviction, they, they then bent every rule possible to obstruct uh, his exoneration. And I'm reading this vivid account of how that all played out from Brian Stevenson's perspective as the uh, heroic district attorney. And it, it's, it's like this, this is the worst um, case example of the system just gone off the rails totally. And it, uh, uh, so, so the case we're talking about uh, it seems about seems to be as bad in a different way, and that's that's about all I can say on it. And, and you know, uh, Mr. Connery as well, and uh, Professor Huff, you know, you you both make excellent observations in this case. And you know, when you look at, and I have to reflect back on on something that uh, that uh, Professor Huff said uh, with regard to a case like this, as well as others, you need that judicial leadership. And in this situation, you had uh, uh, federal uh, federal judge Christine Arguello was not leading anything, and, and Cliff often refers to it as you know being a referee. And in this situation, uh, this this particular judge was anything except anything but a referee, and and it was as if you know sort of orchestrating. You know, sometimes you hear the analogy of herding cats, and you know. And and she was the one that was kind of pushing everything into us into a certain direction, uh, even down to the point of admonishing the uh, the IRP six guys when witnesses were not there. But it wasn't at their own doing because the witnesses were not there. It's because the prosecution uh, uh, orchestrated a, a situation where by they ended their case a week and a half early. And when you have witnesses coming in from out of town, you know, uh, traveling. How is a judge going to sit there and once, you know, uh, one comment after another? I mean, she's just hammering the guys, saying, "You better get your witnesses here. We're not going to continue. Uh, and if you don't have a witness on the stand, I'm going to consider your case as as uh, as being rested." I mean, have you ever seen anything like that, uh, Professor Huff? Well, I've seen too much of it. Um... And uh, leadership is is in short supply, as I mentioned. We need it. Look at what, look at what's happened in Dallas since uh, Craig Watkins took over. <coughs> we talk about the conviction integrity unit, and that's now becoming, as uh, Mr. Connery pointed out, it's mushrooming. We're seeing more and more of these units. That mm-hmm. was a result of Craig Watkins' leadership. He right. he provided the leadership to do it, and we just don't see enough of this leadership that we need at the judicial level. Again, we need to see judicial <coughs> leadership. We we often find people rubber stamping, um, you know what the police and prosecutors have said, but they need to take hard look at this and not just rubber stamp it. <clears throat> so uh, as it goes up the line, we see too much of this endorsement and rubber stamping going on. What, what we called in my first book I did with my former Israeli student, we called it the ratification of error. And so we just keep ratifying these errors instead of taking a hard look at it. And until we see this kind of leadership develop, um, we're going to keep rubber stamping errors at the lower levels. Right, and then you look at even when this was sent up to the higher level, because one of the one of the main problems in the IRP six case is that there was a sidebar called um, during this this uh, witness um, debacle uh, where the witness showed up in the transcript. Right, and it it never showed up in the transcript, and and uh, the Honorable Judge H. Lee Serkin he said. 
that uh, you know the the fact that the judge is it, the judge is uh, basically allowing her court reporter to paraphrase what he's saying, allowing her court reporter to get away with not capturing something that the judge said during the proceedings. Now, it's one thing, I mean, the judge tried to use these excuses. Well, maybe my court reporter didn't have her headphones on. Maybe uh, someone wasn't speaking close enough to the microphone. Maybe they weren't speaking clear enough. But we are not talking about testimony of the and, of a witness and or none the of defendant. That whole, and none of that whole water. I mean, none, water. none of that whole water, but we are not even talking about, we're not talking about the words of a witness, the words of any of the defendants. We're talking about what the judge said is not in the transcript. So you're telling me she's admonishing people the the entire trial. She's telling witnesses when they're talking, make sure you're close enough to the mic. The court reporter has to record everything you say. But then you 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 expect for us to believe, Judge Arguello, that you're not close enough to the microphone that the court reporter then pick up what you had to say. That's it not is, the kind of transparency that we should insist on. That definitely, definitely is not. It is. It is absolutely ridiculous for, and and the thing that that really you really you have to have a basis for appeal that's a record. And if you don't have a record, you have it. It obviously automatically cripples your basis for any appeal. Yep. Yes, and and you would think that the appellate court would say, hey, lower court, circuit court, you don't have the record. And and it's not just any piece of the record. It's not just said, okay, you started the proceedings at nine o'clock in the morning. This is where you have six defendants saying our Fifth Amendment violation. Uh, I mean, our Fifth Amendment constitutional right has been violated, and the violation does not exist in the transcript. How then does the appellate court say, well, we affirm what the judge did when it is not even in the transcript? What happened? It 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 is it is so beyond uh, just 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 belief, just just anything that you could fathom going on and what it's supposed and to be. And you know, Cliff, on, on three occasions, the IRP six requested that transcript. Yes, three occasions, and each case in each situation, the story tended to change, and it got down to the to the last request where Judge Whale pretty much just said, "Well, you know." Uh, how, how many pages are we talking about? And, you know, for the whole day, it was like 200 pages or whatever. But the fact is that sidebar was still not delivered. And she makes a comment on the record that, well, you can't use the un- unedited version for anything anyway. And, and you know, it, it's one of those things that, uh, like you said, uh, uh, Professor Huff, it, it's that's not the type of leadership we need. We need to I mean, the judge should be ensuring that that people receive a fair trial. I mean, unless you unless you're bucking for the 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 title of the hanging judge or something. Right, right, absolutely. Well, and, as uh, retired judge Sor- Sorokin uh, pointed out when he analyzed the case, you know, when you look at this logically, um, they're basically just saying that they there there was no transcript that included that, and so therefore, you know, too bad you can't get it. Well, we'd like to say thank you to uh, Mr. Connery as well as Professor Huff joining us and uh, taking a significant portion of your evening uh, to spend with us. And uh, we'd like to invite our listeners to go out to a-justcause.com, a-justcause.com, and uh, get more information about a Just Cause. And then go out to ajcradio.com to hear our archives of the program. And then, uh, Cliff, uh, who do we have there? Well, we want to just say to you, uh, Mr. Huff, thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, we My are pleasure. Getting- our show 
so we will definitely invite you to come on another time. And uh, you have a good night, sir. And uh, thank you again to uh, Mr. Connelly for joining us as well. Uh, on the line, we're going to take one more call before we end the show. We have the truth back on. Uh want to make a comment. Go ahead, truth. You're live. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, uh, one, one of the guests were talking about uh, the cutting back of the budget that has happened. And when I looked at this article uh, in Texas, they had spent $750,000 on keeping some pigs cool while inmates died in the prison of, the, uh, uh, of temperature degrees of 120 degrees inside the prison. So $750,000, uh, they had turned the air conditioning on in the prison. That those inmates would not have died while you're cooling uh, some pigs outside. But how much more is the, is, the, is the money in the budget being wasted for useless things when it should be used for what is uh, what is given for? So I had a problem with that. That's all I have to say. Bye bye. Absolutely. Thank you for your comment. That that definitely is a problem. I mean, when pigs become more uh, valuable than human life, that is that is totally. And so wraps up another uh, episode, if you want to call it that, of AJC Radio Coast to Coast. We want to say thank you to all of our uh, call-ins, um, you know, everybody who called in with questions and comments. We'll say thank you to our, our guest, Mr. Donald Connery and Professor Ronald Huff. We appreciate you guys uh, spending a good part of your uh, evening with us. Uh, we also want to say thank you to our production team, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson of K&D Productions. Helping out Ill Skillers Girl in the control room to make sure that you hear what it is we have to say. Through our production support team, they give us updated and accurate information most of the time. I wish you guys would have found that hall guard for me. Uh, <laughs> also, to the truth, we know you're out there. We appreciate it. I want to say thank you to Olivia and Miss Barbara for your work behind the scenes, keeping everything flowing for us smoothly. We appreciate it. We love you guys. Join us each Tuesday and Thursday right here on a Just Cause Coast to Coast from 8 to 10 p.m. And uh, if uh, you'd like to get a lot of good information about things that are going on in the judicial system, this is the place where you're going to get that information. And uh, tonight is a good example of that. You can catch us each Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Progressive Radio Network. You can get there by going to prn.fm. Keep our brothers in prayer. Keep the IRP6 in prayer. That's David Banks. Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, Garrett Parker. Also, we ask that you would just uh, go out and uh, find out more information about them uh, at freetheirp6.org. Freetheirp6.org. Cliff, do we have a, a request out there for some of the former uh, jurors? That's right. So any jurors out there who are listening, we know that if you're hearing this information that's uh, going on on this show, that you got to have some questions about what's going on in that courtroom that the judge did not allow you to hear some of her um instructions that she gave, some of the things that she told you post-trial. If you want the information that we have, we are more than willing to give it to you. Reach out to us. Call us at 855-529-4252. Again, 855-529-4252. Or send us an email at contact at 8. You know, I like something that uh, Professor Huff said as far as, you know, we need some judicial leadership out there. We need some people who uh, are men of integrity, and I think all of us on the, on the discussion tonight talked a little bit about D.A. Watkins in uh, Dallas County, and uh, Professor Huff was talking about those who don't have integrity, and, you know, well, you know, what do you get? And and so uh, this is going to be a plug for Sidney Powell. You get the Sidney Powell book entitled License to Lie, and right. so you end up with a bunch of people who 
they have this immunity, this blanket immunity to just do whatever they want to do. But the tide is shifting. Cliff. Yep, just want to say thank you to everybody and join us again next week on AJC Radio where we bring you education, information, and awareness awareness (laughs) about (laughs) judicial injustice. Hey, I'm Sam Thurman along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and our special contributing analyst, Lamont Banks. Join us next time. Good night, America. Good night. Good night.